If you have a really clear vision, you can create your own thing and just stick, mm-hmm. you know, just be consistent with it and refine it. TTYA Talks, the podcast. So guys, you know, every week we need to be focused and our guest today has had her writing work appear in some of the biggest publications in the world from The Guardian to Vogue to Mary Claire to The Evening Standard, just to name a few. When I first met her, she was the deputy editor for LUK and honestly, guys, she supported my career for so long. She was one of the first incredible writers that wrote about TTYA and has really championed black women, black designers. Um, She's now the editor of Grazia and has an incredible book called Girls and we're going to get into all of that in this podcast so without further ado I'd love to introduce Kenya Hunt. Hi Kenya welcome to TTYA Talks the podcast how are you today? I'm well Irene how are you doing it's so good to see you. I'm good surviving and thriving in these streets sis (laughs) trying to. I've been loving watching you thrive and travel and live your best life and um and just be well. I mean, I'm I'm really happy to be a part of this podcast because I've been listening and loving what you've been doing. Oh, I'm so excited. Thank you. So let's start at the beginning because you know every week we need to be focused. <laughs> Some listeners might be thrown off a little bit about the accent. So tell us about where you're from, where you grew up, and just a little bit about your kind of early family life. Yeah, so I grew up in in the States, in Virginia. I was born in Germany. Uh, an army brat and then I we moved to San Antonio Texas when I was really small and then settled in Virginia and that's where I grew up and yes so I mean I've been you know I lived in New York for a while after that and then moved to London but to my very core I consider myself to be a Virginian first and foremost so that's very much a part of like my identity and who I am oh sick amazing so when I was reading I saw that you know that growing up you were a classically trained dancer and it's so interesting to me because on this podcast I always try to show like not everybody always ends up where they thought they were going to end up sometimes you start at A and end up at B but sometimes you actually have your career path planned out and it doesn't work that way for any or everyone so tell us a bit about growing up as a classically trained dancer and how you kind of transitioned into journalism. Yeah you know I grew up like eating, sleeping and breathing dance. I loved it. You know, when I was really small, I would watch, I would go to the library and look for archival footage of like Bob Fosse or Alvin Ailey, Martha Graham, all of it. I just like, just, you know, even when I was a teenager, I wasn't interested in boys. I was like interested in dance. Like that was just my whole entire world. And so my mom, you know, ever pragmatic as she is, always told me, and you'll probably relate to this, because I think we get this in a lot of black families, you know, across the diaspora. My mother was like, you know, you can give the dance a little bit, but that's not going to earn you coins. Like you need to, you know, make sure you get a degree in something, get your Mm -hmm. education. And so even like, you know, growing up, she would take me to all of, you know, my dance performances and classes and things, because that was a full-time job in and of itself. But she would always like, you know, at the end of the day, just say, you know, you got to stay in those books. And so I but I always had these secret aspirations that maybe, you know, I could just become a famous ballerina or whatever and prove her wrong. 
Um, so yeah, I went to, you know, uni- a good university and got a, you know, an English lit degree, moved to New York. Uh, but actually I started going to New York as an intern, you know, just to, to intern at magazines. And so I started taking classes. I started studying at the Ailey, the, uh, uh, the Alvin Ailey American Dance Theater. Um, and my parents supported me in doing that because I was still sort of moving towards the professional track at the same time. Um, mm-hmm. But I, you know, my my mom was really strict. She was like, you got to give yourself a cutoff. She was like, if it doesn't look like it's popping off, then, then you got to like get into those magazines, get on that publishing track. Um, and so for me, it's like I was auditioning, but it was very clear that I was not going to be the next Misty Copeland as, <laughs> as much as I wanted you try, to be. You tried, girl. You tried. <laughs> I tried and I performed, I did some professional performances, you know, I was living my best life for like, you know, a little, st- a short stretch. But yeah, I mean, it was very clear that, you know, a long term career is a, a ballerina or, or a modern dancer, because it was really the, I, the Alvin Ailey realm that I loved so much was not in the cards for me. So I just, you know, mm. made a made an assessment very early on to just keep going down the magazine track, which I loved anyway. And that was a world that was, you know, really intriguing to me as well. So your work, your writing work has appeared in The Guardian, Vogue, Mary Claire, The Evening Standard, just to name a few. How did you first make your entry-level point into journalism? Uh, By consistently um, following up with people, reaching out to editors on the mastheads of magazines that I enjoyed reading and following up to the point where it was just short of harassment. (laughs) But um, I remember, um, yeah, reading Vibe magazine and Elle and Vogue and Harper's Bazaar and Essence and Ebony and all of it. And just and so I would just meticulously just work my way down the masthead and send emails out and correspondence. And then I would call and follow up and, and get nowhere. And so then eventually... I did get a call back. It was a magazine called Time, well, Time, Time Magazine. (laughs) And then um, The Village Voice in New York. And so with the Time internship that was in D.C. and then the the Village Voice opportunity was in New York. So I remember interviewing, going up for my interviews and getting both. And so that was a real kind of fork in the road for me. And I ended up going with the Village Voice because the opportunity to be in New York was like a no brainer for me. Um, From there, that kind of set me like on my path. Sick. So what was your kind of career journey like then? How did you move from, you know, starting in New York, moving there, starting entry level and then building up slowly and steadily? Yeah, it was really about relationship building uh, for me. And I tell this with the mentees, you know, because I work with, you know, a fair number of Mm -hmm. university students and things. And I always tell them that to be really intentional on how you build your relationships and just remember that it's a really small industry. The media world is vast, but it's small Mm -hmm. at the same time. And so you just never know, you know, how your relationships will flourish and blossom in the future and where people will be, where you'll be, where the people I've you intern with or work with will be. And that was very the, much the case for me. So, I mean, the relationships that I built during the course of one internship would led me to the next because, you know, I just tried to make myself invaluable to the people I was working with so then that they would be happy to recommend me to the next job. And so that's kind of how it worked for me in a kind of like linear, one thing led into the next, led into the next. Um, 
And so, yeah, I just, I mean, I was fortunate in that I genuinely liked the people I was working around as well. So it was easy, you know, the work sometimes feels like a lifestyle. So you're, you're building these friendships at the same time. But yeah, I think a lot of it does come down to like the, 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 the networking and the relationships that you that you build. For sure. And what is kind of like the secret to getting a reader to care about a story? Because essentially like journalism is is storytelling, you know? So what kind of angle do you always take to make sure that your reader is really going to care about the story that you're writing? Well, I think often, well, always, it's just quite simply asking yourself, why should the reader care about this? Like, why does she care? And then answering that, like, just very clearly. And in a way, like, that's not too overly explanatory, but that you're really sort of painting a picture that's really quite compelling and engaging as well. Um, so like that you're, you're really grabbing the reader from the outset with like an intro, for instance, that that's really quite compelling and that will make someone stop. Cause you know, oftentimes, especially now on the internet where everyone's con- uh, consuming everything, you know, things become trendy. Like, you know, language becomes trendy, phrases become trendy, ways of describing things, headline conventions, all of it becomes really fashionable. And then you just start to feel like you're reading the same thing over and over and over again. So I find mm. that sometimes it's just really good to stop and ask yourself, like, why am I putting these words together in this way? Like, why am I telling this story? Why should she care? And how is it different from, like, everything that she's scrolling and consuming online on her you know online and on her phone and on instagram and tiktok and snapchat and everything else many 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 social media platforms um it would be great to maybe hear like a unique story that you pitched and were able to kind of execute um well i remember one of my first ever stories that i pitched that i was really this was for forever ago, but I remember feeling so excited about it was when I was at Jane, when the first magazine, that was like my first real proper magazine job. There was like a real conversation about sexism and hip hop as it relates to music videos, because that was the period where you women were in music videos as props. Hip hop honeys. Exactly. <laughs> it reached a point where it was just like it, too much, like out of control. So I remember like I went like undercover as a video um girl and a little ex video (laughs) and so I was like this you know little like recent grad or whatever trying to like blend in with these girls who were on set and it was such a um you know an eye-opening experience but it was so much fun to write and and it had such an impact as well because you know it helped spark some dialogue about it um or add fuel to a dialogue that was already going on but it was great because that that was a period where you know, it's nice when you're out of school and you're quite young, if you have an idea and an editor empowers you and lets you go off and do it. Cause, um, and mm-hmm. so I try to do that myself when I'm working with younger, uh, you know, writers and assistants who are coming up, because sometimes you think these things are so hierarchical and that only the most seasoned, most senior ranking can write, you know, a story that's longer than like a couple hundred words or things like that. But actually I think, you know, people can really surprise you. And so, yeah, I was really, I just remember feeling so excited to have been entrusted with that um, experience of, you know, writing something like that. So, you know, I think it was my first year there. So it was, a, yeah, it was a really fun thing to do. And I was actually going to say to you, like now, because I, for me, I don't really know the internal mechanics of how the magazine world works. It would be great for anyone listening that also might be interested in journalism, but might not know, like maybe just give us like top line overview of how the mechanics of a, of, 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 of a magazine works. Yeah. I mean, I think it's almost like 
nowadays it's it, it's probably more accurate to say the the media space because it's all mm. e- even you know I work at Grazia which is which is a magazine but it's so multimedia driven now because there's digital and there's all the social media platforms so it's changed during the course of my working life because before the mechanics were very much like you get the job you produce the pages for the magazine you go out to the events like everything was very much driven towards this one product this print product whereas now it's so multifaceted so mm. i think the mechanics of it are still driven by storytelling like whether it be written or visual like you're producing the shoots that you know and now you know social media really like helps the imagery that we see in these shoots travel even further mm. like you see a great cover uh-huh. story and everyone's like you know vibing off of it and engaging with it and reposting it which is great but so I mean I guess the mechanics are still the same when you look at the root of it. But we have so many more platforms that we're telling these stories on. So yeah, I guess it's about, you know, there's a team of people essentially who are telling stories visually and written. And then it's just uh and then just the logistics of like, you know, making these stories live a life on all of and these these many, 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 many manifold um, platforms that we're all working across. <laughs> So when we first met, you were at LUK. You'd climbed the ranks to deputy editor, um, which is the most senior role ever held by a black woman in the British luxury fashion magazine world, like full stop, period. What expectations and responsibilities did you feel, if any? And were there any that were kind of being unique to being that first black woman in in that position? When I joined um, it, you know, I I was on a mat leave contract. And so I was very much thinking, you know, I might not be here for the long, kept developing from there. But I never really thought of myself as being the first in that sense, I guess, because I was, you know, I was rising up the ranks. So I joined at one level and then, and you're so busy, like in the midst of producing the work. And then, you know, there were amazing women there, like Donna Wallace, who is a dear friend. And then there were other women in the space as well, like Des Lewis, who I think was at Mary Clara at the time. And so I would see these women and just think like, you know, they were doing such incredible work and I was so glad that they were in that space. And I just remember thinking, it's so hard to get a foot in the door that I wanted to be able to just use that to... So I wasn't necessarily thinking, oh, I'm, you know, there aren't many black women who've reached deputy editor or any rather, you know, in this luxury magazine space. I was just thinking it'd be great if there were more of us. And Mm -hmm. so that's why I thought, it was just always like at the top of my mind that this is like a real problem, like that there just aren't many of us out here like going to these events and just constantly like just seeing how homogeneous things were but diversity would still come up in meetings or in in larger discussions or in headlines so I just remember being really quite preoccupied with like how can we help people get in the door because even like applications you know sometimes I'd be filling roles um, or interviewing applicants for roles in the application pool that, that, that I was seeing in the room looked overwhelmingly mm-hmm. you know hom- homogeneous and so I was just trying to think like how can we get you know how can we make sure that these CVs we're looking at are you know really diverse and how can we get a more That's- diverse pool of people you know mm-hmm. in here so that we're not the only but that there's more like we're making space for more people and it's funny because you say that because some of the earlier work that I read that you were writing about was a lot to do with when you first moved um, to London from New York, you know, and how the network of the pool of the women that you were in, like you really felt like you were the only, you were the only one in that work environment. You were the only one in the social environment. What were some of the lessons learned and how did you kind of almost stay true to yourself being in that kind of environment? I think the lessons that I learned was that you, sometimes it's about really knowing where to look 
because for instance, I remember when I moved here, I didn't know anybody black, but I knew there was a rich culture and scene here. I just didn't know where to to look or who to to find the rest of your tribe. Exactly. (laughs) And then over time, you know, there's so many, you know, then I knew where, how to tap into it. And just through the nature of my job being an editor as well, I just began to meet so many people here. But I remember when I first moved here and I just saw the city before me and I didn't know anyone. And I was like, gosh, I'm really starting from scratch. Like, how do I manage to build what I had in New York that felt so vital to like, you know, my being able to sort of exist and thrive in a space. And so Mm -hmm. I think one of the key lessons I learned was just persevering and not like looking at something and taking it for face value, but really just Mm -hmm. really taking the time to really like um, figure out where to look. And so for me, it just meant like sometimes like cold calling people and reaching out to people from scratch who I just saw and admired. And I was like, you know, Mm -hmm. also because this was before... Instagram where you could slide into someone's DMs and things like that. It would just be like a random tweet on Twitter or like, you know, that sort of thing. It social media hadn't quite become the force that it is right now. I mean, social media was a thing, but we weren't like living on our phones in the same way that we are now. We're touching on social media because, well, from the outside looking in, I think that social media has really affected journalism. Um, what is, how, how has that actually come to life? Because essentially, like now, like you did touch on it earlier in that, like trends and keywords and like navigating that, like how, how much do you feel like social media now has affected journalism? I mean, it's changed. It's completely changed everything. I mean, literally, it's changed like the very like it changes. It's changed the way we consume it. You know, we're no longer solely consuming it on paper, but on screen. So like, you know, there's that in terms of like the physicality of it. But then the language, because I've really been fascinated by how quickly language comes in and out of style because I, I'm just, you know, I grew up in the South where, you know, I grew up in America where, where particularly black Americans, the slang we used differed according to what part of America you grew up in, you know, whereas in DC, everyone would talk about like carried and like, I mean, everyone had different like terms that we used. Mm. Whereas now it's like all one big it's, you know, it's all on social media and it happens so quickly. So for instance, now everybody's saying like, and that's why Mary had a little lamb. And that clearly <laughs> must've come from the, where the money resides guy. I yeah. think. But then I'm like, is that where it came from? Or did it come from somewhere else? Like it, cu- it happens so fast where everybody's saying the same thing and then it goes away. So I feel mm-hmm. like it's changed because when you're writing for the internet, everyone's tapped into the same phrases and culture and it it changes on a dime like the next thing you know Mm. you could scroll and there's like the shade room has like released something and everyone's like adapted to this whole new inside joke so I feel Mm. like that has changed a lot in terms of like the way you and that's just one example that's a part of a very specific culture I mean you know there's Mm. so many different examples of this in so many different corners of the social media space. And because we have a daily conference at Grazia where we're always talking about stories that arise, like, you know, one of them right now is the fact that there's this side parting debate where, you know, like if you have a side part or a middle part, it's meant to tell you, reveal which generation you're part of or one of two, whether you're Gen Z or millennials or whatever. For instance, like these are the kind of stories that just were not a thing (laughs) when I came out of school. Like, is it just, it just wasn't a thing. Um, because also like social media wasn't a thing 
like it is now. So yeah, I think that's just one example that I've been thinking a lot about lately. Like you just said, you're now at Grazia and you're now the deputy editor at Grazia. Um, how did you adapt for moving to like more of a monthly to a weekly? Because Grazia must be quite intense because because it's so such a quick turnover, you must be constantly having to feed, like live off information. What was the transition like? I mean, it's constant. I mean, it was it was busy before at L again because everyone's working across everything. So it's like, you know, you're still working digital, which is short lead. But I think at Grazia, it was like a shorter lead on top of a short lead. So I was like, Jesus, like it was really like fast paced. It, you know, the pacing was fast, but I really like it because, um, you know, I read Grazia for years before joining it. And so that was always the magazine I would turn to for like, you know, a certain level of tea and and then all sorts of other things as well. And so it's just fun. I'm always tickled, like sitting in those daily conferences, because literally the range of subject matter really like runs the gamut from, you know, what's happening with Megan and Harry to, you know, what's happening in Lagos with NSARS to like literally what's happening with the side parting on TikTok to, I mean, it really, there's a real full range of it to like, you know, how like, you know, these Anissa Kermish pots became like so popular because, you know, the magazine had really covers a real sort of cross section of subject matter. So I, it was a real adjustment in terms of pacing, but I, you know, I like the range of topics that are discussed. I feel like there need to be cameras in those daily conference meetings that they have in the morning because there's so many like passionate discussions happening about so many things. Well, I was just going to ask you, like, how do you manage the stress of such tight deadlines? Because it must be such a quick turnaround constantly. It's literally, um, you know, I think in terms of the stress of the deadlines. I think you just, anyone who sort of works in that space, you just become adjusted to it in a certain way. So I, Mm. it just becomes like, um, I don't even know you after a certain point, you just don't think about it because when you do it for so long, but it's, um, yeah, I mean, I think meditating, I do a lot of meditating (laughs) outside of work hours. Me too. (laughs) Yeah, it's good. It's healthy. I think, Kay, it would be really great to maybe get maybe some like five tips or some tips that you could give to any young person who's thinking of starting a career in journalism. Well, I mean, one of my biggest tips is that if you cannot get, uh, you know, that internship or that job or that big legacy title that you've been reading on your mother's coffee table for years and admiring, do like literally fret not. You can create a space for yourself right now. And that's the beauty of working in this environment. I mean... There's so many incredible examples of people just in the past year of lockdown alone who've just created their own platform and have audiences that rival, you know, massive magazines. I mean, I look at Elsa, the comedian on Instagram. And how old yeah. is she? I can't re- remember. She's how- so young. She's, she's crazy. a baby. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And she's so young. She's so young. So young. And when you look at her, this audience, this engaged audience that she has. So that's why with these students, I'm like, you know, literally you can just, if you have a really clear vision, you can create your own thing and just stick, mm-hmm. you know, just be consistent with it and refine it. And just keep, you know, being consistent in what you're putting out there. And you can develop that and then capture the attention of the editors that you aspire to work with. Because there have been so many people whom I've hired just off of the strength of the portfolio that they put up on their 
their Instagram or their Twitter or like back in the day, their Tumblr or whatever, you know, whatever mm. tool they're using. Oh, so Tumblr. <laughs> there's been that's so many. Throw it all the way back. But that's, I mean, but there people have used different ones over time, mm. you know, is what I'm saying. So yeah, I think I just encourage people to really like, you know, make sure that they, they're making the most out of the platform that they have. Um, to show off their work. Uh, I want to get into your book then, because this is the next big, I'm like so excited to talk to you about this. First of all, the title, like I was like, girl, like I just can't wait. Like, and I just love the subject matter. So for anybody who's listening to this, like Kenya's book girl is on womanhood and belonging in the age of black girl magic. Um, It's a collection of essays on what it means to be black, a woman, a mother, a global citizen in today's ever changing world. Like in your experience, Kenya, like what does it mean to encompass all of those things? I mean, it, it, yeah, that's the thing. It means so many different things. I mean, think about your girlfriend, you know, your network of girlfriends. Like it's so, I mean, it's, there's so many sort of nuances to it. I mean, there's just, uh, there's a friend um, or there's an author I love um, who I'm friendly with named Damon Young. And he said, you know, if there are 40 million black people, there are 40 min- million different ways to be black. And so, I mean, that's very much how I feel about us. Like, I love the, the, um, the, expand- the expansiveness of black womanhood and who we are. And so I just remember, you know, going back to the book's title, hearing girl used all the time growing up, because I grew up in the South in Virginia. And like, you know, the word girl would be drawn out in all different ways. Also based on the richness of the Southern accent and the meaning would just change depending on who's saying it, how you were saying it, the mood, the context and everything. And I just felt like that was so indicative of like the beauty of who we are and the expansiveness of it. And also how it's used differently in Virginia to how it's used in New York and DC to how it's used in London. Like, I mean, I I love like just hearing so many, I just, to me, it's like when I hear it used in a very particular way, I feel like it's a real kind of like kinship, you know, between women. But um, so, yeah, I think it's um, yeah, I mean, with us right now, I mean, black women have never been more celebrated. I mean, when you look at um, Stacey Abrams and, you know, the founders of the Black Lives Matter movement being nominated for Nobel Peace Prizes to Kamala Harris and the, the, the White House. I mean, there have been so many like major, major like historical wins as well. So, you know, it feels like it's an incredibly like an incredible time in which black women have been like the primary like driving mechanisms of like the course of history and current events. Um, And then, you know, at the same time, you know, there, you know, there's a reality of our lived existence that can um, differ quite wildly to, you know, how people see us and perceive us and what they expect of us. So I wanted to explore all of that essentially through my own experiences as an American living here, but also through the experiences of women and, you know, the many, many women I knew. And so I invited, you know, a group of women, some who are really close friends and some who are women I just encountered through work who I'd long admired for, you know, for years to to share a few of their stories. Well, some of those women include like Candice Carty Williams, Fumi Feto, like I love Fumi's book, like which is really, really powerful. And I love that you added, you, you empowered those other women to be part of your project too. Why was it important to have those other black women voices in your book? It was important to me. The format was important to me at the outset because I feel like my friendship network 
Um, you know, I grew up in a family of women. There's my mother, my, there's my sister, myself, and my father, of course. But And then I've always, you know, loved having a fierce networks of friendships around me, like women friendships. And, you know, I love that that explosiveness of having like a big group of girlfriends around you and that loud cackle and the support. Like, I mean, I just love all that comes with it. And so for me, it felt very much, um, it felt really important to have, to share that with other women um, with the book, because I feel like other women have been so vital and integral to my story in particular, um, especially as it relates to my being able to have a life here in London and, um, and, you know, build a career here as well. Well, you wrote the book before the whole like reinsurgent of the Black Lives Matter movement, before it came back into the limelight um, across every single news feed around the world. You know, obviously following the tragic murder of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor. Like, what is some of the long lasting messages that you re- really want your book to have? Because I'm sure with a lot of us during this time, we've been kind of thinking about legacy and like, you know, we've been all invited to rooms where we've been asked to speak about our blackness and how we feel about blackness and, you know, the space for change. Like, you know, well, so with my book, I've been really clear, you know, because you and I were two black women speaking with one another. But with a lot of the interviews I've been doing, I've been I've made it really clear. I'm not trying to speak for all of black women. I'm just trying to tell my truth and speak to my experience. And so I would want, I guess, for my legacy to encourage other women to do the same, just to normalize speaking your truth in a way that is a value to you. And uh, because we don't really have to answer to anyone but ourselves, you know, like I'm not necessarily so interested in trying to prove my humanity to anyone um, in in a racist world. I'm not interested in trying to convince someone that I'm capable of, you know, being all, all these things that people tend to think that black women aren't. It's more so about like really celebrating ourselves and recognizing who we are and what we've accomplished, but also giving ourselves permission to take a step, take a pause and take care of ourselves when we need to. And so I think it's really just about, you know, just having the the power and the luxury to be like whatever, Mm. whatever that, that space is that we're looking to occupy. And however it is that we want our lives to look, just allowing ourselves to just be that rather than having to shoulder and carry all of these other expectations that are foisted on us. Because it was a difficult time after all of that, because it was, you know, we especially for a lot of us who've been in the industry and have been quite vocal about, you know, the discrepancies that we see like out in external versus internal. And that was my whole thing around that whole messaging on social when everything kind of blew up. It was like, all I am asking as me, Irene, I can't speak, I can speak for my community in certain instances where I need to. But also in this instance, all I'm saying is let your internal business message reflect that of your external so if you're talking externally about being biodiverse if you're talking externally about being inclusive if you're talking externally about you know if all your visuals and all your brand identity is built off black culture then I need to see that internally too like if that's externally what you're giving me then also let's also be keeping the same energy when it comes internally and that was my main issue was that internally we see one thing and externally we see something else and it's not adding 
adding up. And I think there was a few Zooms around that time that we were both on, like, you know, and it just got to the point where it was just like, it was just, it was weighing on my shoulders. Like, I'm like, we can't continue to always, you know, take on the world's problems. <laughs> like, we need to, like you said, it's like you need to find your own strength within that and just do what you can do. And it's not fair to, like, always have this expectation put upon us to, like, explain why people should be anti-racist or why we deserve equality or why we deserve, you know, it's not it's not a question of that anymore. And I think that's something within this time for me that was really important in understanding that I don't, I, all of this rise is a lot of noise, but for me, the most important thing is I just need your internal business message to reflect that, that you're showing me externally. And that's it, sis. I think that's <laughs> so important and so vital and so real, especially right now mm. when everything is so performative. Because uh, I'm just like, okay, great. It's never been more fashionable or more popular to be down for the cause. But like, mm-hmm. what does that really look like in your day to day life? And, you know, and what are you really doing to sort of help lift as you climb and create space for other people? I'm so, you know, 100% with you on that. But also it was really interesting because I was reading a lot of books. by Like during that whole period, I kept going back to you know, a lot of writers from like the 60s and the 70s and the 80s who had lived through, you know, some mm-hmm. some stuff. I mean, basically like uh, earlier sort of versions of what we were going through in terms of, um, you know, these things, history just keeps repeating itself. James Baldwin and Tony Capenbara. But then I was also reading uh, the new, this um, new author whom I'm sure you've heard of, Yag Yassi's. Um, yes, home, home, home going. going. Yes, and then yes, her yes. new book, Transcendent Kingdom. So there was at oh, one point last that. year. Yes. It's good. So I was reading The Salt mm. Eaters and Transcendent Kingdom at the same time. And both of them were stories of black women who were attempting to heal themselves after doing the work of taking care of everyone else. And so on the Salt Eaters is very much about this woman who was doing justice work and had had a breakdown and literally had to put herself back together. And the other one was a woman who, you know, also had a breakdown and is looking at the whole concept of healing. And I just think we're so, you know, Black women collectively are so often expected to shoulder, like you said, like the, 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 the woes of the world and to fix them. I mean, even when you look at there, like lots of pub um, memes that were really popular around the election that kept saying, trust black women, trust, believe black women. And yes, that's true and valid. But I mean, I do think, yes, you know, for instance, with the presidential elections, like black women came through and saved the day, but that was very Mm -hmm. much an act of self-preservation as well. That wasn't like some selfless, okay, here, we're going to come save you all yet again and teach you how to be whatever it is that mm-hmm. you need to be. This was like, we need to do what's best for us and vote in our best interest and make sure that, you know, there's a change in this administration. So I just think, it, you know, there's a real discussion to be had about the spaces we occupy and how we allow ourselves to occupy those spaces in light of the fact that um, people are talking about Black women more than ever before and um which is a great thing but at the same time you know there's labor in that you know in terms of like all these discussions about diversity and inclusion and then the next thing you know you're being expected to inherit all the problems of that and fix them (laughs) unless you're going to pay people accordingly (laughs) 
sis, louder for the people at the back because the checks never come in, sis, but they want all the answers. They want all the answers. And that leads me on to your, your mentoring grant because, you know, that's where we kind of really first engaged when you invited me to come to L and like meet some of your mentees. And like, I just remember being in that room and it just being so powerful, like the electric of like people really wanting to learn, but up me even meeting other women that were within the industry and even till today, like still friends with them and meeting them through you. So I was really grateful for that. So I know you kind of set up room as a way to kind of advocate for greater diversity in the fashion industry by providing support network for some of the best and the brightest aspiring designers, journalists. Tell us a bit more about why you started the mentoring program and, you know, what kind of goes into making sure that it's a success. I was the recipient of great mentoring growing up, never through a a formal mentoring program. I just had, you know, really incredible women in my life. You know, I shout Beth Ann Hardison out every chance I get because, you know, she was someone who has and to and to this very day has just been a very great and supportive friend to me. Like I, there were a lot of women like that in my life who helped um, give me courage and um, helped inspire me to persevere when, you know, I felt, you know, insecure or unsure. You know, they were just great sounding boards for me coming up. And so I wanted to do the same. And also I realized that if it weren't for them, I would not be here to this day, I probably would have dropped out or, you know, there's just, it's, you know, at our, this industry in particular is so relationship driven and it, you know, there are nuances to it, particularly the fashion and the media space. Mm. It's so nuanced. So it really does help when you have someone who can help show you the ropes basically. Mm-hmm. And so knowing what I do, I think it's really important just to pay it forward in that way. And so with Room, we just, that came out of uh, dinners that I was having with girlfriends, which was a, just a selfish thing because I was like, you know what, I'm trying to build my tribe. <laughs> Let's, you know, meet each other for dinners and then we can just share experiences, you know, like girlfriends do or whatever. And then it got to a point where I thought it would be nice to do this with young, you know, young assistants and students who are trying to like come through because I would do like panel discussions like you've done many of and I'd mm-hmm. always get approached by people afterwards like how do I get a foot in the door how do I get job in fashion and uh, so we just thought okay let's you know pay this forward and next time we do one of these group gatherings and these dinners let's invite some young ones through and so yeah it came it started that way and so I've kept it pretty loose and informal it's not a formal charity or anything like that and it's really um, a support network I like to call it now because you know each most of the mentees are paired with mentors and they have that one-to-one relationship throughout the year. But now in this past year of COVID, you know, it's really been rooted around these um, or centered around these Zoom gatherings that we have where I have guest speakers come in. And then sometimes we'll do ask me anythings where they, you know, the mentees can just ask the mentors, whatever, which I think is what we did when you came. Um, You you spoke and then everyone just had a chance to sort of ask questions or workshop things. And so I really just wanted to be a support network so that they're receiving knowledge from the mentors in the group, but that then they're also able to sort of form these bonds with each other. And it's been great. That's my favorite thing about the group because they have, you know, there's so many incredible uh, young talents who've come through and they form their own bonds and relationships and they hook each other up with work. So they commission each other for articles or major magazines, or they get each other to write the show notes for their, you know, their critically acclaimed runway shows. You know, I just love watching them all work together and they're like rising up and like, you know, using each other's 
talents and resources to to create the work that they're doing. Oh, I love that. And if anybody wanted to like maybe sign up, were interested in Room or signing up, how do they go about it? Any any new gen? Yes. So we have a website, roommentoring.com. So you can contact me there or basically email or um mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, then I, they're co- the course directors at CSM, LCF, and RCA who often will get in touch through with me via the the schools. But I think if you just go to roommentoring.com and then contact me that way, that's the best way. And then I do an intake twice a year, um, and so I tend to t- intake um, twice a year in, in a big in a bigger group. And then I like for people to stay with the group for quite some time so that you actually get something out of it. Because with internships, they tend to be quite short. Um, and mm-hmm. so then you're in and out and you don't necessarily always get to soak in as much as you would if it were a year long or longer. Um, so that's why I like for people to sort of stay in the group for a little bit, you know, more than like, you know, a few months. They stay with us for a year or more. I love that because mentorship obviously is just, is especially in this in, in the creative industry, it can literally make or break you. Like it can really give you, and that's part of why I set up TTYA Talks and the podcast derived from that because I was like, I just really like was finding my own way. Like, but sometimes you just need that kind of big sister vibe to be like, okay, you should be charging this or have you thought about this or invoice this? Have you sent this NDA? Just, just that helping hand to just make sure that you're staying in track. So I'm just, so thank you so much for inviting I mean, I'm telling you that day, guys, like the questions that I was getting, I was feeling the heat. I'm not going to lie. But, you know, they were on job, but they, they knew what they wanted to ask. They were focused. You know, they were so focused. I got some fire questions just to kind of round up. Um, maybe what is your proudest moment in your career so far? My proudest moment in my career has been room and watching, you know, watching them thrive because, you know, they're all they've got some great jobs now and I'm watching them get promoted and do their own things and then in turn start mentoring others. So, yeah, I think that's the thing I'm most proud of right now. Love that. When do you feel the most comfortable in your own skin? Comfortable in my own skin is and probably well most times at this stage in my life I try to be (laughs) comfortable always um but at home in Virginia my parents like living room or like at the kitchen table like eating a a big like plate full of crab legs or like in the backyard at a barbecue (laughs) love that and what are some of the activities that you do to just keep your morale up keep your spirits up that make you feel good about yourself I love to dance I miss dancing so much and so you know in lockdown with we do this thing where sometimes we'll just turn the music on or we'll turn on like D Nice's set or whatever and so I'll just dance with my eight-year-old and my two-year-old and we'll battle like we'll have a battle (laughs) so that's like the thing that that I've been doing the most of in lockdown and we'll just literally sweat it out they break dance because that's what they're into and then I'll like fire they got from their mom (laughs) they got their dancing feet from you okay (laughs) but yeah so I just I missed that in tours and I'd stopped going out because I felt like I always had to go out for work and now I'm realizing how much I took it for granted so I feel like as soon as things like get back you know to normal and are open again I can't wait to actually start like going to events and actually showing up (laughs) oh sick so what's next Kenya what are you allowed to tell us? What gist are you allowed to reveal? Yeah, I'm thinking about, you know, how book number two might look and all of that. So I'm just kind of in a process of just like thinking and absorbing and adjusting and just writing a lot to sort of figure out exactly uh, how the next thing might look exactly. So, yeah. And then just at Grazia, just, you know, pumping out these issues. <laughs> 
um, which is like a constant, you know, it's fortnightly now. So twice a month, like clockwork, it's out there on those newsstands. I love that. And if anybody wanted to follow you after hearing this episode, what's your social media handles so they can like, love and subscribe? I mean, it's <laughs> so Instagram is Kenya Hunt. And that's really the only thing that I am active on. Everything else, I'm just a voyeur. So I'm on Twitter as Kenya and Hunt, but I'm literally just scrolling to seeing what everybody else is talking about. And then I'm on Clubhouse and TikTok doing the same. Just, you know, being nosy <laughs> and scrolling. I just want to say thank you so much for, for your time, Kenya. Like, honestly, like for anybody who doesn't know, I'm going to share a personal experience here. Like, Kenya was one of the first um like journalist that gave me a platform when I started TTYA. L was one of my first big write-ups that I got. You know, I shot like a random picture on Instagram in this yellow, in one of my yellow dresses. And it was like on the header page at L. And like, you know, that was what, like to this day, I still remember that because I just remember thinking, oh my God, I'm on L.com, like so sick. Um, but I just wanted to say thank you from the bottom of my heart. Like you've always supported me. You've always supported TTYA, the brand. And I can't wait to see what comes next from you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Okay, guys, that's another episode of TTYA Talks. You know the vibes. Love, like, share, subscribe, get into it. It's all peace and love with me, Irene TTYA. See you next time. Thank you, Kenya. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you enjoy the podcast, please spread the word. Rate, review, subscribe, all of that good stuff. For any questions, please also feel free to send me a signal on Instagram or Twitter on the handles at Irene TTYA or at TTYA Talks.